There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. 97.1 FM The Drive presents the Behind the Song Podcast, taking you deeper into classic rock's most timeless tunes. Here's your host, Janda. In this episode of Behind the Song, let's dive into the incredible story and lyrics of me and Bobby McGee, a song made famous by the singular voice of Janis Joplin. It is Joplin's best-known song, her biggest hit, and her epitaph. Recorded just a few days before her death at age 27 of a heroin overdose in October of 1970 in Los Angeles. It was released on her posthumous album, Pearl, in January 1971. The song was actually written by Chris Christopherson and Fred Foster. Foster was a songwriter and record producer who advanced the careers of Roy Orbison, Willie Nelson, Dolly Parton, and Christopherson himself in Nashville. Me and Bobby McGee was inspired by a crush that Foster had on a real person, a female secretary on Nashville's Music Row named Bobby McGee. And Christofferson built on the song with a twist on the name and a concept taken from the film La Strada by the Italian film director Federico Fellini. And by the way, you can listen to episode 30 of Behind the Song to hear how Fellini's work impacted Bob Dylan's Mr. Tambourine Man. Before we get into how Janis Joplin came to record me and Bobby McGee, let's get into a little background on Christofferson. He's not your average entertainer. Before becoming a songwriter, a singer, and an actor, he was first a Rhodes Scholar at Oxford University, then a helicopter pilot in the U.S. Army, which he left to pursue a career in the music business, heading to Nashville and supporting himself with odd jobs including one as a helicopter pilot for an oil company in Louisiana, flying back and forth from there to Nashville to pitch his songs. Famously, he got his big break with a bold move. As the story goes, he landed a helicopter on the lawn of Johnny Cash with the aim of getting Cash's attention on songs that Christofferson had written and pitched to him, and it worked. Cash had a number one hit with his song Sunday Morning Coming Down in 1969, which really launched Christofferson as a player in the music world. It was during this time, doing odd jobs in the late 60s, that Christofferson wrote the lyrics of me and Bobby McGee. As he recalls it, sitting on an oil platform in Louisiana, waiting to fly back to Nashville with music in his head. He told American Songwriter Magazine that he'd been thinking of the Fellini film La Strada, starring Anthony Quinn. La Strada translates to The Road in English, and the premise is that Quinn's character is traveling with a feeble-minded girl as part of a musical circus, and he gets tired of her company and leaves her as she sleeps. Later, he hears a song that the girl would play on her trombone in another town, and when he asks about where the song was heard, he's told that a girl was playing it as she traveled through, but that the girl had since died. 
He becomes overcome with grief at abandoning her, gets drunk, gets in a fight, and finally goes crazy, howling at the moon. The price of his freedom for leaving someone who depended on him. And that was the seed that grew into the most unforgettable line of me and Bobby McGee. That freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Janis Joplin wasn't the first person to record the song. Between 1969 and 1970, it had been released on recordings by country stars Roger Miller, Kenny Rogers, Gordon Lightfoot, then the Statler Brothers, and finally by Christofferson himself. But it was Joplin's raw, exposed, blues delivery of the lyrics that really made it complete. Christofferson first met Janis Joplin in the spring of 1970, just a few months before her passing when he arrived at her ranch in Larkspur, California, in the company of Bobby Newworth, the same Newworth immortalized in the documentary film Don't Look Back as Bob Dylan's best friend and partner in crime. Newworth had seen Christopherson set at the bitter end in Greenwich Village, New York, and convinced him to hop on a plane to go hang out at Joplin's place in California, just north of San Francisco. When they arrived... Joplin immediately took a liking to the handsome Christofferson. They had similarities beyond music. Both were incredibly smart, creative people who grew up in Texas, and the two of them embarked on a romantic interlude. During this time, he played her Me and Bobby McGee, but he wouldn't know that she'd recorded the song for the Pearl album until the day after she died. He says he broke down completely when he finally heard that recording. And as for matching the content of a song, there was no better embodiment of a wandering soul for it than Janis Joplin. Born in 1943, she grew up in the oil town of Port Arthur in East Texas, a daddy's girl and the oldest of three children. She was really smart and a voracious reader who also liked to draw and paint. Her father was what she called a secret intellectual who wouldn't allow television in their house. He had an offbeat sense of humor, and he was an atheist, while her mother was devout, a familial split in ideology that would be hard to explain to polite society in 1950s Texas. Joplin grew up well provided for, but it became clear that she would never be typical, nor a typically beautiful girl. She developed acne as a teenager, was prone to swings in her weight, and had wild, unruly hair all things that would further set her apart from her peers in town during a time in history when a premium was placed on feminine looks. And she was drawn to music like a moth to a flame, specifically the music of blues singers like her hero, Bessie Smith, and to the poetry of the beatniks, which further isolated her from the Sally homemakers in her hometown. In high school, she went from being popular to being bullied for her individualism which left deeper scars than the ones that the acne carved into her face. She went to the University of Texas at Austin and then ran away to San Francisco in 63, landing in the Haight-Ashbury, where she began recording songs with future members of Jefferson Airplane, and she developed a taste for speed, becoming emaciated from its use. At the worried insistence of her friends, she returned to Port Arthur two years later, weighing only 88 pounds, and was nursed back to health by her parents. She briefly changed her lifestyle, enrolling in college again, and continued to pursue music by commuting to Austin to play 
at Threadgills, the venue that would become historic for booking her when nobody else would because her soulful voice and her style was so different from what other singers, much less white female singers from Texas, sounded like and looked like. She became engaged, but the relationship ended, which shook her fragile emotional state even further. She tried psychotherapy, but she couldn't reconcile her two desires in life to live in harmony with one another. Her burning desire to be a musician, to be a star, and her want and need to settle down to family life. Giving up on the latter, she returned to California in 66 and became the frontwoman for Big Brother and The Holding Company. They were signed to Columbia Records and their intense set fueled by her incredible vocal performance at the Monterey Pop Festival in 1967, finally made Janis Joplin a star. But it didn't make her happy. As time went on and her fame and fortune grew, with Big Brother and The Holding Company, with an appearance at Woodstock and on The Dick Cavett Show, and throughout the recording of her two solo albums with musicians from the Full Tilt Boogie Band, she was becoming more and more unpredictable and needy. She was living a life that she had once tried desperately to free herself of, back on drugs, doing increasing amounts of heroin, and drinking inhuman amounts of her favorite liquor, Southern Comfort. She had a revolving door when it came to relationships with both men and women, desperately trying to find love in any way that it might come to her a brilliant woman rendered helpless by her own insecurities and covering the pain of it all up with substances and a dry, cackling laugh that hinted at all the turmoil inside of her. One of the remarkable things about Joplin's voice was her ability to scream in tune, in perfect pitch. And that's how I think about her life, screaming along like a runaway train, mesmerizing in its inevitable crashing. And it was Janis Joplin's ability to take a song and wrench every drop of emotion out of it that made her version of me and Bobby McGee the one that went down in the history books. After all, these lyrics seem to have been written just for her life story. She could relate to them, feel them. A song about a pair of wandering lovers who come together for a little while, only to separate eventually. The cost of freedom being losing those you love in Joplin's case, over and over again. A song that found its way from a crush on a secretary through Christofferson's filtering an Italian movie drama while flying over the American South in a helicopter, and finally to become a swan song for Janis Joplin. It goes like this. Busted flat in Baton Rouge, waiting for a train, and I was feeling near as faded as my jeans. And Bobby thumbed a diesel down just before it rained, and it rode us all the way to New Orleans. I pulled my harpoon out of my dirty red bandana. I was playing soft while Bobby sang the blues. Windshield wipers slapping time, I was holding Bobby's hand in mine, and we sang every song that driver knew. It just fits that the name Bobby can be used for either a man, as it is in Joplin's version, or a woman. It was named after a female secretary, after all. The harpoon referenced is a term for a harmonica. Some argue that this is a reference to a needle used to inject drugs, which is a darkly convenient tie-in 
to how Janis Joplin died of a heroin overdose. The song continues. Freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing. Don't mean nothing, hun, if it ain't free. And feeling good was easy, Lord, when he sang the blues. You know, feeling good was good enough for me. Good enough for me and my Bobby McGee. Knowing what we know about Janis Joplin's life, it's impossible to miss how these lines paralleled her existence. She flew in and out of love affairs, none of which lasted very long, always looking for a way to transcend her loneliness, whether it be within a relationship with someone or in the music that she called her salvation. Feeling good was good enough for her. And the song rolls on. From the Kentucky coal mine to the California sun. There Bobby shared the secrets of my soul. Through all kinds of weather, through everything we'd done. Yeah, Bobby baby kept me from the cold. One day I'm near Salinas, Lord, I let him slip away. He was looking for that home and I hope he finds it. But I'd trade all of my tomorrows for a single yesterday to be holding Bobby's body next to mine. The fact that Christofferson wrote the song to include the town of Salinas in Northern California is a detail that's almost eerie when Janis Joplin sings the lines. Salinas is just shy of two hours south of San Francisco, the place where Joplin finally found a family of sorts in the misfits of the hippie rock community. In the song, Bobby slipped away in Salinas, continuing on the road, leaving her to yearn for the times they had that will never come again. This she experienced in some way with all of her relationships. In just the last few months of her life, this would include David Niehaus, an American tourist she met in Brazil in early 1970, as well as 21-year-old UC Berkeley student Seth Morgan, who was living at her home up in Larkspur while she was in Los Angeles recording the Pearl album, with her former paramour, Peggy Caserta, with whom she had split just months before her passing over their combined drug habits, and with Christofferson himself. And she sings, Freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose. Nothing. And that's all that Bobby left me. But feeling good was easy, Lord, when he sang the blues. Hey, feeling good was good enough for me. It was good enough for me and my Bobby McGee. The song escalates and ends with Joplin crying out the name Bobby McGee, crying out for a person who would never anymore exist for her. By 1970, it was as if Joplin knew she didn't have much longer to go on. She made changes to her will just two days before she died, allotting $2,500 for her friends to have a party for her in the event of her passing and giving the rest of her fortune to her parents, her brother, and sister. While she was recording Pearl, she was staying at the Landmark Hotel in Hollywood, close to Sunset Sound Studios, where she was working, and she was found in her room, number 105, on October 4th of that year, dead of an overdose. She was only 27, and her death followed the passing of Jimi Hendrix, also 27 at the time, by just two weeks both of them entering the doomed 27 Club of rock icons who died at the same age due to excess, including Jim Morrison and later Kurt Cobain and Amy Winehouse. And icon is the word for Janis Joplin. 
There are some performers who transcend to become one with their audience, and she aimed for that with every performance. She was a prototype for female rock stars. Along with Grace Slick, she influenced a long list of front women, from Stevie Nicks to Pink and many, many more. Her story inspired the film The Rose, which is based on her life and starred Bette Midler. She's been immortalized in song by the Mamas and the Papas, Leonard Cohen, Jerry Garcia, and more. Janis Joplin was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 1995, and her star was installed on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in 2013. Importantly, she held her own as a female in a world that was firmly inhabited by men. Even if she was numbing herself to the effects of stardom offstage, there is no one who could deny that when Janis Joplin gave a good performance, sparks would fly. She was beautifully electric, vulnerable, cantankerous, bawdy, funny, and sad. And the girl could wail. The Pearl album, so-called after the nickname Joplin's friends gave her, became the biggest-selling album of her career, certified quadruple platinum. When it was released in January of 1971, three months after her death, it went to number one on the Billboard 200 and stayed there for nine weeks, driven largely by me and Bobby McGee. On its cover, Joplin is sitting on a chair, wearing her bell bottoms and beads, and with her signature feathers in her hair, holding a drink and a cigarette, smiling at something or someone off camera. Part queen holding court, part exotic bird, a rough grain of sand that became that rarest of things, a pearl. A girl who once said, I just want to feel as much as I can. That's what soul is all about. I'm Janda, and this has been Behind the Song. Special thanks to Christian Lane for the music you hear on this podcast. Subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Podcast One, or stream for free at WDRV.com Behind the Song or on the Drive app. Subscribe to the Behind the Song podcast on YouTube and see the video episode. Follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Jandalane Radio and on Twitter at Jandalane. On the way, new episodes on the lyrics of Foreigner, Thin Lizzy, and more classic rock and roll. Put the power of podcasting to work for your business. You can be part of Behind the Song and reach potential customers inside every episode. To advertise your product or service by sponsoring Behind the Song, send an email to podcast at hubbardradio.com now.